Well, good morning. Happy New Year. We're going to uh, stay in the spirit of the new year and talk about some things that are rather basic. We're going to go back to the old book and take a look at some principles in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Principles that we'll see for our individual lives, principles that we'll see for our lives with our family, with our spouse, at work, with our friends, sort of return back to the basics. I note that uh, Major League Baseball players always go to spring practice in, in February. All the, uh, uh, the pro football players show up in June and July to practice their craft, to go back to the basics. And we're going to do that this morning. So go ahead and get uh, going with us in your Bibles, if you will, to go to Genesis chapter 2, particularly is where we're going to camp out, but we'll be moving into chapters 1 and 3 as well. And we're going to take a look at what I call the first command. This is the first command that God ever gave a human being. And at first we might think, well, I would think the first commandment would be in Genesis 1, for the book of Genesis is primarily chronologically intact. But we're going to see that really Genesis chapter 2 is this jewel of a chapter that is designed to help us see the unique role of men and women together under the plan of God. And we're going to see that this chapter, in fact, has a time where God is going to deal with Adam first and then present Eve to him. And we're going to see what God first says to Adam, but more importantly, whether it's the first commandment or not, we want to see the structure of this command. Because I think as God lays out the very first commandment he gives to Adam, he will be in keeping with that throughout the rest of the Bible. It's as if he's tipping his hand. He's telling us how he likes to give laws, how he likes to structure commandments. And I think it's very affirming for us as well if we imitate and emulate God as we deal with the commands that we receive and those that we have charge over and help them through life. So one of the things that I thought was important to think about is what is the nature of a command? And, and what we can learn, of course, from, from one who gives a command is we can learn about the lawgiver. Lawgivers give commands that they value. They espouse what they hold important and wrap them up in their commands. We can learn about the characteristics of the person, the lawgiver, found in his law. So if we want to take a look at God's first command, we can learn some things about God. And for us in particularly, I think we'll be able to identify some patterns in God's laws and in particular this first command that will also serve as guidelines for my life. And that's my goal this morning, to really lay out a very simple plan based on Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, how God has chosen to give his first command. Now, it is important for us to really think about the nature of how Moses, superintended by God, brings about the revelation in Genesis chapter 1 and then in chapter 2. Because our command is going to be in Genesis 2, but let's make sure we understand what God is doing. I think in Genesis chapter 1, primarily, he's giving a large panoramic view. In fact, I sort of tweak the chapter break, and I take the first chapter to really go all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. I think it fits a little better, and I'll explain that in a moment. But God, in the first chapter, gives this large panorama, almost like with a headline in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God creates heaven and earth. And then he goes through six days of activity, and then one day of Sabbath, or rest, or cessation from activity. The word elsewhere is used to enjoy that which has been accomplished. 
Six days of activity, one day of rest. And we see that in that panoramic view, uh, it is large and encompasses all seven days. Genesis chapter 2 is just going to focus on the latter portion of the sixth day. In Genesis 1, we see the overview of the entire week. Six days of work, one day of rest. In Genesis 2, again, it's a, a restatement, a flashback, if you will, where he goes back and takes a look just at the latter portion of the six days. Now, the six days of the sixth day, the six days of creation are sort of like a 4th of July firework display. You go and, and they do some nice fireworks and everybody kind of goes, ooh, and ah. And then at the end, it's as if that we got to shoot all these firecrackers at once and the whole sky lights up. Genesis works that way. In Genesis days 1, 2, and 3, he forms the earth. In Genesis 1-2, the Bible says the earth was formless and void. In days 1-2 and 3, he brings form to the earth, like a construction project. He, he shapes the planet, continents here, rivers here, lakes here, ice caps here, hot regions here. He provides shape to it. The shape is designed so that he can fill the earth with living creatures. Remember, the earth was formless. Days one, two, and three, he gives it form. It was void, it was empty, and he puts things in it. And he gives three types of creatures that he's going to place on the earth. Creatures of the air, creatures of the sea, and then creatures of the earth. And there are three types of earth creatures. The creepers and the crawlers, the beast of the fields, and then finally, and at the end of the whole creative week, human beings. Male and female created in God's image to rule over the planet that he had made for us under his stewardship. It's a beautiful picture, and that's what's going on primarily in Genesis 2, where he's going to first create Adam and then Eve, and he's going to give us one entire chapter. Think about it that way. Think about it from an author's perspective. He's going to use one whole chapter to talk about all seven days, if you'll allow the chapter break to be at chapter 2, verse 3. And he's going to use one whole chapter just to talk about human beings. He's giving us a great amount of weight because we are in a weighty position of ruling and reigning under him. In Genesis chapter 1, as we go back to see the, the comparison, he's going to give commandments to both Adam and Eve. The verbs are plural, the pronouns are plural in verses 26 through 31 in chapter 1, where we're told to fill the earth and rule over it, subdue it. Those are y'all verbs. You both do that. But in chapter 2, we're going to see that the verbs are singular. And the pronouns are singular because Adam is there by himself for a while during that latter portion of the sixth day before Eve is created. And he's going to give that first commandment to Adam. So in Genesis 1, we see the creation of Adam and Eve together. In Genesis 2, Adam first and then Eve. So we come upon the commandment that God is going to give Adam by first making sure we see this vast area, this vast region the Bible calls the garden as it's seen as we pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 7. So read along with me from your Bible. It'll also be on the screen. But it helps us see 
the amount of verses that God is going to first assign to this very large area over which Adam is to work. And so keep that in mind as we read through this. Why all these sentences, God? Why this large description of this place? Notice he says, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold, the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man, placed him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Lots of verses describing a very large and abundant land over which Adam is to work. He is to keep and cultivate. The problem is, is the Bible calls it a garden. We think of a garden as something in the backyard, maybe a little square foot job, or maybe you live on a ranch and maybe it's a quarter acre, half acre garden, and we can sort of miss the magnitude of this acreage over which Adam is to work. That will come in handy later as we make our way through Genesis 2 the importance of recognizing that Adam is given a magnanimous task to keep and cultivate this very large region. Let's take a look a little bit more closely at Moses' use of the word garden in Genesis, and I think we can get an understanding that this isn't something in the backyard. This is a very large, expansive area. First of all, we can learn about the garden mentioned 14 times in the book of Genesis. It has a middle. It's big enough to have a middle mentioned twice. It has a river. I've worked a lot of gardens and never had a garden with a river in it. The river is so potentially powerful that after it leaves Eden, it divides and becomes four more. So the boundaries of the garden expanding a little for you now, it, had, it has trees, all sorts of trees, trees that are pleasing to the eye, trees that are pleasing to the belly. And it had two trees in the middle of it. So all of a sudden, it's more than a few tomato plants. Now I'm moving you to the area of a forest, if you will. It is so large that in Genesis 3, Moses tells us that God used to take walks in the cool of the day in the garden, this vast region over which Adam is charged. And Adam, after his sin in the next chapter, still a magnificent being, thought he could hide from God in this garden. It was so large he thought he could get away. Kind of silly to imagine Adam trying to hide behind a little stake tomato plant in our backyard. That's not the case here at all. Later, the Jordan River Valley will be likened to the garden of God in Genesis chapter 13. So you have in mind something in your backyard, let's replace it with something that looks like this. A vast, fertile, abundant region, beautiful trees, all sorts of kinds of trees that bear fruit 
with a river. That is what Adam was charged to keep and to cultivate. As we see now God becoming uh, ever more intimate with Adam as he has formed him and now he is going to bring about what we're calling the first command. And this is the couple of verses that we're going to spend most of our time on, sort of dissecting them a bit to sort of see what's behind God in his mind when he gives a law. And in this case, the very first law that he has given. And so what we're going to see is first God will command the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. He's alluding now to the verses we just saw, that vast region of all those trees that you've planted, that have been planted, those that are pleasing to the sight, pleasing to the, for food, and there are two other trees in the middle of all the trees you can eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So if we've got lots of trees, there's just one from which he cannot eat. And lastly, he gives a penalty phase, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I see three main structures to this command, so let's take it apart just a bit and see if we can label the the mindset of God as he gives these laws, what is he trying to convey? First, he's going to convey lavish, large provision. God is a God who first provides for his creatures. Notice, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely adverbs all throughout there. Eat freely. Any tree. Literally the word for any is the whole. The whole of the trees you may eat. And eat freely. Without restriction. Without any kind of of concern. The provision is lavishly stated. And here's the key to the little model. Then and only then does God give prohibition. He first states the the large and lavish provision from which Adam may partake, and then and only then does he restrict. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. One tree, literally probably among thousands. Think of a forest. Think of an orchard. Think of those times where you're riding in California or Florida and you're going past an orange grove in the car and the rows just go like this. It's like a silhouette against the, the background of the, of the horizon. It's just perfect lines throughout the field. From one tree, don't eat. And then I think he properly gives us a penalty phase. Amazingly, these all begin with a letter P. I just realized that now. Not really. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. At first we may go, God, that's, that's, that's pretty rough. That's pretty, that's pretty tough. I think it's gracious. I think it's gracious of God to first of all communicate to us how important he considers our obedience to him to be. Full provision relatively small prohibition and I'm not kidding for in the day that you eat of it you will be disciplined there will be death biblically death is this idea of separation from the goodness of God we'll see that unfold in a moment so those three p words provision prohibition and penalty form the structure of God's first command and we'll see that structure being woven throughout the word of God 
We'll see the, the aspect of a large provision coming throughout the scripture. You'll see the idea of a, of a small prohibition being what are the commands given to us, but only after God has told us what we can do. And he is also kind and gracious and wise enough to keep us away from sin by reminding us that the way of sin is death. And there is penalty around that phase. So notice that these principles as they extend throughout the scripture. Large provision shows up throughout the Bible. I just picked three. Ephesians 1.3. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Notice chapter 1 verse 3. Ephesians has six chapters. God through Paul especially, but Peter as well, he'll always start with reminding his audience, which are Christians, this is who you are in Christ. This is what Christ has done for you. In Ephesians particularly, 27 times he's going to use the phrase, in Christ. In Christ is where it's at, is Paul's perspective for the Christian. And that is where you are, believer, one who has recognized that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead. You have access to unlimited provision in the person of Jesus Christ. He'll say the, a similar thing in Colossians 2.10, very short and pithy, I love it. We are complete in him. So much uh, time we spend at times uh, running around trying to find just that one other thing. If I went to that conference or if I went to and read that book or if that podcast could get downloaded on my iTunes, I would have everything I'd need to know about God. He tells us in Christ we are already complete. Our provision is large. It is abundant. Second Peter 1.3 says the same thing. We have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. He sort of sums up the whole Christian life as to life with God and being like God or godliness. And he says we have been given everything to do that. Like a ship ready to sail, we're outrigged, we're outfitted. Our provision is large, it is lavish, it is enough. We need no more. And as we see that in Genesis 2, from any tree eat freely, the thread like the thread of a tapestry goes throughout the rest of the word of God. God is a lavish and large provider. He also is a prohibitor. But notice, again, like we see in Genesis, he only prohibits after he's told us what we can do, all that we have access toward. He doesn't start with what we can't do. He starts with what we can do and who we are. And then and only then does he prohibit. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. He's a jealous God. He knows that any other idol in our life will take us away from him. And he says, don't go there, for I am sufficient. Don't go there, for I am sufficient. Notice bringing the, 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 the two ideas of provision and prohibition together. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 11, there are, there are literally hundreds of things you could choose from. But I love the way Paul states things to Timothy in his final two letters. He'll say in 1 Timothy 6.11 to flee from the love of money. And he'll use this concept of flee, run away. It's not good for you. It was not intended for you. You are prohibited from that. Flee from that. And in the same verse at the end, he says, but rather pursue righteousness and the things of God. So even then, even when he's telling us what not to do, he reminds us of the provision and all that is ours in Jesus Christ and in the person of God. And also in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lust and wait for it, 
pursue righteousness. Great little side study for all of you to, to, to look up the word flee and look up the word pursue, especially in Paul and Petrine literature, and you'll see a wonderful guideline for the Christian life to don't do these things, but pursue the things that God has for us. He is also a penalizer. And if you'll uh, agree that perhaps a penalty is a good thing, if it can serve as a proper warning, that I believe is what God is doing. But remember, the penalty only comes after the provision is stated, only after uh, the, the small prohibition is stated. And now the penalty, very clear in Genesis 2 verse 17, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Don't need many lawyers to interpret that one. In fact, there probably weren't many lawyers back then. There was only one law. Don't eat of this one tree's fruit. All the others you may, but if you do eat, God providing us a good goad system to move us back toward righteousness, he warns us, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Paul will state that the wages of sin is death in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It's a biblical principle that he's captured there. The soul that sins shall die. It will be separated from the life of God. It's amazing in Genesis the, the stories and the characters and the themes being introduced in this little couple of verses in chapter 2. That obedience brings forth life, that disobedience brings forth death. And those two opposite ideas are really form the rest of the story of the word of God. And they're in conflict and they clash. And ultimately, of course, evil is defeated. But those are the two combatants, if you will, of the word of God. So powerfully introduced in chapter 2 of Genesis, restated in several verses like Romans 6.23 in 1 Corinthians 3.15, Christians who will stand before the judgment seat of Christ are warned that if we have not behaved properly as a believer, we will suffer loss. Those works will be burned up. Not a hell type of imagery, but a judgment of, of works that were not based on the person of God. Yet he goes on to say, well, we will be saved yet as through fire. But the suffering of loss is a warning for those of us, as we will all stand before the judgment seat, to live correctly. And then in 1 Timothy 1.9, a beautiful metaphor, I take it, that Paul is, is likening our walk of faith, our life as Christians, to a ship at sea. And like all captains of ships at sea, you need to bring your charts you need to know the way. You need to know where the reefs are and where the, the, the deep parts are and where the other boats might be coming. Because in 1 Timothy 1.19, he warns us from a negative example that there are some who have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Their ship of faith has wrecked. Doesn't mean they, they go to hell, but their, their, their sense of, of living with God a right and obedient life has come upon a barrier and they've capsized and they've taken on water. He warns us not to be that captain, not allow that boat. Remember Adam? We left him back here in this garden. He didn't have a work crew. He didn't have a wife yet. He didn't have anybody to help him establish 
what God had provided for him, that is to keep and cultivate that large garden. And Genesis is going to go on to tell us God, ever the provider, notice, he tells Adam his situation. It is not good for the man to be alone. And in context, it must mean toward the task that had just been described in the previous verses. You with me? Just in the previous verses, he had outlined the large task of of this very large area. He's told Adam to keep and cultivate it. Now he tells Adam, you can have any tree, any fruit, but one. And if you eat of it, you will die. And you, sir, are not sufficient to the task of maintaining this garden by yourself. That is the purpose of the first marriage and really is the purpose ultimately of marriage is the formation of a partnership toward a common goal. And that's what God is bringing about here. He tells Adam of his situation and then immediately comes to the rescue. Look for that throughout the word of God this year, how quickly God tells us the truth and how quickly he also comes and says, don't worry, I got you. I'll cover it. I will provide a helper suitable for him. Beautiful word in Hebrew, the word helper. It's the word azer. It has the idea of one who elsewhere is a rescuer, a deliverer, a completer of that which is missing. Elsewhere, check this out ladies, the term always describes God. It does have nothing to do with cooking. It has nothing to do with cleaning. It has nothing to do with taking care of kids. The word azer is a term for a full-fledged partner in a partnership in which both members are moving toward the same goal of keeping the commands of God. Now, we have to play our roles and do our things, but God is designing here in Genesis 2, and this is the chapter in which Jesus, will, when he's asking Matthew, tell me, is divorce okay? Tell me is what life is like now that things get messed up. He says, I tell you, from the beginning, it was not meant to be that way. And so I encourage you this year to be men and women of Genesis 1. Be men and women of Genesis 2. Be men and women of Genesis 3, because the reality of sin will intrude here in just a moment. But the reality of this chapter is so beautiful that God forms this partnership with this Azer, a term elsewhere used to describe God. It is a term of great significance, of great partnership. He goes on to say that the man, that this is now bone of my bones and they shall become one flesh. You see, Adam got it. Adam had been asked to name all the animals and he did not find his suitable helper from the animal kingdom. But once the woman was presented to him. He couldn't even find a verb, actually. In Hebrew, it just reads, this now. Typical guy talk, right? This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You know, kind of, yeah, now we're talking. That's what I've been looking for. And he, and, and, and the terms he used describe that. She's just like me. And together we become one flesh, ihad batsar, this idea of a plural unity. These two me's now become a we toward that common goal of keeping and cultivating the garden. Biblical marriage, partnership, where two now are joined together as one to be united toward a common goal. And the beauty of that is that they're completed now for obedience. And it's really one of the great high points of the word of God. Adam and Eve at this point in Genesis 2 are one lean, mean, obeying machine. And that's what they were made to do. Designed perfectly for each other 
to live their life under God and for him. And the beauty of that is what Genesis chapter 2 should remind us of. Now, Alan Ross, a Hebrew prof I had at Dow Seminary, phrases this so well, I, I couldn't help but just steal it. With the world in its infancy, the Lord God created the first man with the capacity to serve God and the responsibilities to keep God's commandments, placing him in a perfect environment with every provision and completing him with a corresponding partner in the service of God. That is for what we were made right there. There is exception. There are exceptions to biblical marriage as the scriptures will later unfold. But as when we're in Genesis, he's at the macro level and he's saying, I want to build a planet through a husband and a wife together, united collectively toward a common goal. And that is captured well by that statement. Remember the lavish and large provision, the small prohibition, and the clear penalty. Those are the principles of the first command. And you'll see those principles found throughout the Word of God. It's always fun to preach after the Aggies win, and I was going to use this illustration anyway, but it helps that we had a a good day the other day. I want you to imagine that next year is, which really is true, my wife Fallon and I are going to enjoy our 30th anniversary in August. Now, after I just said that, everything I'm about to tell you after that is not going to be true, but hang with me. It really is our 30th anniversary, and let's just say that I rent out Kyle Field, and I invite, I don't know, 85,000 of my closest friends to come and enjoy the day with us. And we have, you have access, and of course, all of you would be invited because I've not even ever even met 85,000 people. So anybody that I've ever seen is invited. And all the food, all the drink, all the access that you want will be yours. You can go down the field and kick a field goal if you want. You can go in the locker rooms. You can go up into the boxes, press boxes, anywhere you want to go. And this is what it might look like. And let's just say, because I want to honor my wife and our time together for 30 years, that, that to do that, I reserve, oh, a couple of seats right there. Just two seats. Okay? And I put a little yellow tape around it and have a couple of security guards because I want to make a little speech and I want to make sure that we have a place to go. And that's going to be on the invitation. And, and what's going to be stated also is please respect those two seats. Don't sit in them. And if you do, we're going to have to ask you to leave. These two big, strong security guys are going to ask you to move on. Is that a fair presentation? Is that a a fair deal to be invited to this party? It's okay with me. Two seats anywhere else. You had me at kicking field goals. I'd be down there trying to just do one. Now, what if somebody wanted to assassinate my character a bit and he was invited to the party? How might he do that? He might sort of nudge over to you and say, hey man, what's up with this guy? Invites us to this party, but says we can't seat in those seats. What's so special about that guy? What's so special about those seats? I bet if we sat in those two seats, we'd have a better time at this party than he's going to. In fact, he's reserved those seats because he's selfish and mean, and he wants all the fun that those two seats are going to provide just for himself and his wife. Little silly illustration, I realize, but that's exactly what's about to happen as the Bible turns from the beauty of Genesis chapter 2 
to the tragedy of Genesis chapter 3. We're going to see that that large provision, so beautifully stated earlier in Genesis, reiterated in 2.16, from any tree eat freely, it's going to be replaced with a provision that will be questioned. It'll be even ignored at times, or it will be reduced. And this is where things go astray. The prohibition, uh, the small, it's only small in light of the fact that the provision is large, but if I overly focus on the prohibition, all of a sudden it comes a bigger deal. I get you to look at those two seats. You're no longer looking at the other 85,000 that you can sit then. You're only looking at that which you have been prohibited from. And lastly, of course, the penalty very clearly stated in Genesis, very clearly stated on the invitation, that's going to be replaced, as you might imagine, with either being ignored or reduced. And that's what happens to us. These become our sin patterns. And in Genesis chapter 3, all three will come into play. One is enough to get us in trouble. When all three occur, it is disaster. As the provision is ignored or reduced, as the prohibition, relatively small and fair as originally presented, is now elevated to something far grander than it ever was intended, and the penalty phase is ignored or softened, if you will. It's no longer uh, that big a deal. The serpent, of course, biblically, is the foil. He's the one that comes along as we, we move from the comedy of Genesis 2 now, the tragedy of Genesis 3, and the serpent shows up on the scene. And he comes on the scene asking a question. As we're going to see him being introduced here, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Great word, crafty. It's it's actually a term used elsewhere in the Proverbs, particularly to describe the prudent man. It's not a bad word. Craftiness is is the act of of being careful, uh, of checking things out. We might say strategic thinker today. Careful to look for trends, doesn't always talk, just watching, looking for the right time to make the move. Now, craftiness intended for evil can, of course, bring about evil, but it's not per se a negative word. He, of course, is going to use his craftiness to bring about which God has so beautifully just brought together in Genesis 2. He wants to now bring ruination on that. And we're going to see that he's going to come along and he's going to ask a question. Watch how he does it. Because as you might imagine, one who was just introduced as crafty will behave craftily. I went to seminary for all that, right? Crafty people behave craftily. What does he do? Indeed, he asks a question. Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, we just spent a lot of time looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Six ways to Sunday. Is that what God said? Not at all. Let's compare, by the way, what God had said. God in Genesis 2 had said, here's her exact words, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Again, any and freely, lavishness, provision, abundance, large, it's yours. It is that that provision for God's creatures that God gives, and we see him do it throughout the word of God. Evil one is going to come along and say, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Key word in that sentence. If you're doing your Bible study methods, what's a word you're going to circle? Not. He's going to lead with a negative. If you've been to debate class or lawyers have learned to do this, what, he, what the crafty one is doing, he's establishing a premise. 
Don't accept the premise of the question. Don't allow him to start with a negative because not only is God telling us how he gives perfect law, as we've seen in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Bible is also telling us the modus operandi of the evil one. He comes along questioning our knowledge of God's word, number one, and twisting it toward the negative. Now, the proper response, of course, would be, Actually, no serpent, a snake who's talking to me. That would be sort of freaky anyway, but let's just let that go. That's not what God said, but that's not how it went. They accepted the premise of the question and moved along with the negative aspect. It's actually ingenious what he did. In one sentence, he completely ignored the provision and went straight for the prohibition. Didn't even give credence at all to the provision, blew it off completely and went straight for what they can't do. And that became the subject of the conversation, unfortunately. As opposed to correcting him right then, they'll stay along with him. But this is where we can fall prey to his craftiness by overly focusing on that which we cannot have and completely ignoring or reducing that which we can have. The serpent ignores God's provision and notice diverts attention to that which we cannot have. That's why he's crafty, and he's still up to the same things today. He also is going to attack the penalty phase. God had said, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We've established that. That's a clear penalty, as God clearly warns his creatures of the penalty for disobedience. The evil one is going to now just go all in, if you will. He's going to say the exact opposite thing that God had said. In fact, in Hebrew, he's actually going to take what God had said, the same words will be there, and the author just puts a big not in front of it. Not will this happen to you, and he'll lead with the idea of not. You will surely not do. The penalty is not only reduced from this evil one's perspective, it's obliterated. There is no penalty. God had said you'll die. Serpent comes along and says you will not die. He's also establishing himself as an authority in their life. Who are you going to listen to? God, the one who has lavishly provided, reasonably prohibited, clearly stating our penalty, or this other one who claims the exact opposite of God. Who will we follow? And that's very early established in the book of Genesis as, he, as the serpent will directly and immediately reject God's stated penalty. As the story goes on, there's another conversation between the serpent and the couple. Eve will be the spokesperson for the couple, but Adam is right there with her as we learn that she will give to her husband with her and he ate. We're going to see the two me's that have become a we starting to act like me's again. They're not acting as a we, that powerful couple that we saw. God had said from any tree you can eat freely. Don't eat from one tree. In the day that you do that, you will die. Eve's words tweak it just a bit, but I think the tweaking is significant. Notice instead of any and freely, she's going to say from the fruit of the trees in the garden, we may eat. May not be a huge difference, but it's significant enough to note, in my opinion. She's going to drop the lavishness of the provision, the largeness of the provision. God had said, don't, uh, but from the one tree, don't eat. She's going to add the concept that we can't even touch it. And maybe she had a little attitude when she says it, and we can't even touch it. From the fruit of the tree which is in the garden, you shall not eat nor touch it. God had not said anything about not touching it. 
We see our first legalist on the scene, by the way. And in 13 words in Hebrew that God had used to describe the clearness of the penalty, Eve's going to reduce it to one. The couple will reduce it to one. Lest we die in the original language. A softening, perhaps. A a reducing of what God's word, certainly a lack of precision of of his word had not been communicated. God, we've seen as a large provider, where do we get off the base when we take the exact opposite? I do a lot of biblical counseling, and I do uh, uh, I, I employ lots of different techniques and models, but this is one I often use. And most of our situations in life will, can be answered from this model. As I ask us all today, let's spend a moment and identify where we get off the path. Where are our sin patterns? Am I one who does not acknowledge the largeness and the lavishness of God's provision for me? Not just spiritually, but even the the things of of this world, the things of of money and the things of of substance. Am I the one that sort of blows that off quickly and maybe too quickly and goes to that which I don't have? Am I one who instead of focusing on the large scope narrows to those two seats that I can't have? Am I pushing the envelope too often on that which I can't have and not acknowledging and spending a great deal of time thanking and praising God for what he has given me, certainly in Christ and certainly in this world? Or am I just a good southern boy who who doesn't think that God will, will be so harsh, that God would never act like that, he would never harm me in any way, we might say. We can make that mistake theologically. We can overemphasize one aspect of God's character to the detriment of another. Think about that. God on the left, what our tendency is on the right, what we've inherited from Adam and Eve, is a tendency to turn upside down God's large provision, to overemphasize that which we can't have, and to reduce or ignore the penalty that God has so clearly stated would come our way. So in our relationship with God, do I recognize his large provision for me? Do I overemphasize his prohibitions? And do I uh, ignore or blow off his right to discipline? And what we've seen here also is the need to precisely know the word of God. Three times in Genesis 3, the word of God was quoted all three times improperly. One time by the serpent, it was done in a misleading way, intending to deceive. With Eve's response, it was clearly that of one who was not precise in her understanding of the word of God and Adam's understanding as well, as I take it, as she speaks for both of them, as, he, as the paraphrases really had some major changes. And the third one, again, by the serpent is a flat denial of what God had said. God had said, you'll die. Serpent said, no, complete rejection of God's word. So precise knowledge of the word of God is important. But this model of provision and of prohibition and of penalty works also in all aspects of our life. In my home, with my wife, with my kids, with my friends, with my work. Wonderful principles for work involved here. And I've done a lot of counseling with business guys who are thinking through their business and establishing principles and values for their business. This is the model I give them. Provide largely for your people. Be a lavish provider. Give them the resources they need to do the task you've asked them to do because we saw that's what God did in Genesis 2. Properly prohibit things that they cannot do and clearly state in your HR manuals, if you will, 
What are the penalties for violations? Those become the basic principles of a good working relationship. So do I provide well for those in my care at work, at home, to my wife, with my kids, as our marriage together? Are we providing well for our kids spiritually, physically, emotionally? Am I that guy for my friends as well? Am I a lavish provider? Am I one who has some boundaries? Do I properly and reasonably prohibit? And do I properly uh, set forth penalties for things that are violated? Um, This illustration came to me um, when I was a parent of a younger children. I still am a parent now. It's called the spanking spoon. Now, when they were three or four, they called it the pankin-poon. They couldn't pronounce their S's very well. But, you know... To them, I'm sure they remember their father like Wyatt Earp. You know, I had like six of these on my hand. I'm pulling them out. I don't remember spanking my kids more than four or five times, to be honest with you. Just little, little slaps, little knocks to help them get along the right path. But one particular time, I had already thought about the principles that we just shared with you this morning. But it's when it really came to working with our kids and, and really helping them think through and seeing if this thing worked during nap time because the kids that are 24 years old now were also two and three and four at one time and one in particular just wouldn't stay in her room when it was time for nap and we had a clear room and at that time she had her own room to herself and she had every excuse in the world to come out and our rule was you needed to stay in your room between two and four during nap time earlier in their life obviously they would sleep the the bulk of that time but as they uh, wouldn't sleep at times, the rule was still you have to stay in your room. And she, of course, would let us know that it was raining outside, would come outside of her room to tell us it was raining, and what are we going to have for dinner, and I have to go to the bathroom, and all these things that we would work through with her. And finally, it became a point where it was clear she was just going to disobey us and would not allow the provision of her room and all the stuff in her room that she was allowed to do. You can sing, you can listen to your we sing tapes, you can color, you can sleep, you can read, you can do anything you want, but you must do it within the boundaries of this room. You are prohibited from going outside this room. Well, daddy, I don't like the door closed. Okay. The door will be opened. And so finally, after the last time she came out, I realized I had not properly used the penalty phase. And I didn't spank her. All I did was I sat the spoon down on the threshold of the door, wherein if she was going to disobey us, she had to walk over the implement of the penalty. Perfect. (laughs) Kid slept for a couple of years, I think. I don't think she... She asked for meals inside, didn't want to take any chances. And it really came together that, 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 that these three principles really become the stuff of our life, the fodder of our life, the provision that we've received and also can share uh, the prohibitions that are properly of God to allow for us and to extend to us, we also do. And to penalize correctly and use penalties to warn is a wonderful way 
to bring about excellent relationships. So I, I pray that as this year unfolds, we'll have opportunities to think about these principles, to be men and women of the book, to know it well, and to be refreshed often from chapters like Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 and even the reality of Genesis 3 and, of course, chapter 1. So if you'll, if you'll make that New Year's resolution with me, I'd appreciate it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you again so much for the privilege that we have to come and think about these things. And I pray for each one here, Lord, that you'll give us all opportunity uh, to recognize the lavish and largeness of your provision, to understand your right to prohibit and to penalize, and that we might adjust our lives around those principles. I thank you for each one here, Lord, and our time together. And I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.